160 in the Pew Bible in front of you. That's Luke chapter 5 and verse 1. I do encourage you to open God's Word. Uh, we're going to be working through uh, these 11 verses, verse by verse, and I trust it will be benefit to you as we consider God's Word this morning to have His Word open and consider it together. And while you're finding your way there uh, to Luke chapter 5, I do want to bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Ghana. I praise the Lord that our God is not simply working in America, but He is working in Africa. God is there, God is powerful, God is mighty, and God has His people who are in love with Him, who have been captured by Christ and are serving Him faithfully. It has been a great encouragement for me and I trust for our brother Dave who have spent the last 10 days in Ghana and we are greatly motivated by what our God is doing. Our hearts have been challenged, our eyes have been lifted, and God has indeed been glorified in our hearts. And so it is, uh, I come here uh, this morning with very little sleep, uh, but there is great eagerness in my spirit uh, for what God is doing. It's good to be home though. It's good to be back. Uh, with my family, of course, uh, but it's good to be back at Hamilton Baptist Church, my church community, my family. And so thank you uh, so much for that opportunity. We look forward to exploring that trip with you in later date. Well, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word this morning. We're so thankful for the worship of your people. My heart is overflowing just being here. It has been a good day to be here and to praise you for who you are and what you have done through Christ. And now we come to set ourselves in submission under your word, for your word has authority in our lives. We long to know you through your word. Not simply that we may understand this book, but we may understand the God who authored it. The God who has made us and has redeemed us. We long to know you more, Father. We long to know your Son more. So please, will you not send your Spirit now to give us a heart to rejoice in your truth, 
that we might be changed by it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some time ago, author Rhonda Burns wrote a book called The Secret, maybe a little less than 10 years ago. Her book immediately became a worldwide bestseller. In fact, her book received so much um, acclaim that when it first was released, you would hear the nightly news anchors on the national broadcast begin to discuss it. It was immediately, and I believe still is today, about 10 years after its release, the number one bestseller in the Amazon religion section. It has close to 4,500 customer reviews. Ms. Burns declares that she has discovered the secret to the spirituality that we all long for. Hence the title, The Secret. And so what is the secret? What is this knowledge that the world is clamming for? Well, I'm going to ruin the book for you, if I might. Probably save you some money. Read the last page of her book, for she says, here is the secret. The earth turns on its orbit for you. The oceans ebb and flow for you. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and sets for you. The stars come out for you. Every beautiful thing you see, every wondrous thing you experience is all here for you. Take a look around. None of it can exist without you. Now you know the truth of who you really are. You are the master of the universe. You are the perfection of life. And now you know the secret. In fact, she would write elsewhere towards the end of the book, even more startling. You are God in a physical body. You are spirit in the flesh. You are the eternal life expressing itself as you. You are a cosmic being. You are all power. You are all wisdom. You are all intelligence. You are perfection. You are magnificence. You are the creator. Well, as you can imagine... It is no secret that I have some trouble with those conclusions. In fact, one of the problems I have is that what she is giving out to so many is not really a secret at all. And this idea has been around for quite some time. It's not new. You actually find it in the Bible. Not from God, of course, but from the devil. In Genesis 3.5, he says to our mother Eve, you will be like God. This book is simply a, a repackaging of lies from old, uh, Satan's deceit. Of course, our first parents believed it, and it is, I think, now natural for us to believe it too, to think highly of ourselves, to think that all the world revolves around us. But I wonder, are, are we such a big deal? As so I came to the church building this morning, and the birds sang in glory. Were they really singing for me? Does the sun really rise for me? Well, Peter encountered Christ here in our text, didn't he? Very unique way. Seems to me Peter has come to a different conclusion. A conclusion that life is actually not about him, but it is about Jesus. And how Peter will fit into Jesus' plan and Jesus' will. 
we come to this point in our study of Luke's gospel, in the ne- really the next two chapters, Luke 5 and 6, Jesus begins to gather his disciples together, those who would become his inner circle, the, the disciples of Jesus. And what we see here in this encounter with Peter and Jesus is really the creation of a disciple as Peter has moved from being a, a mere spectator to a disciple, a, a mere listener to Jesus to a follower of Christ. In fact, it's interesting if you trace uh, Peter's name. Prior to this event, in Luke's Gospel, he's always called Simon. You actually see that throughout this, this text we we're considering. After this event, he's al- almost always called Peter. And the only time in which he's called Simon Peter in Luke's Gospel is in this story. And I think what you've seen is his identity is being changed. Jesus is moving him. Jesus is creating a disciple. I believe disciples are what the church needs. Disciples of Christ. Unfortunately, in the American church, we have created a situation where one can be a Christian with absolutely no real commitment to Jesus. People can buy into the gospel but have no life change, no pursuit of Christ. I believe what the church needs in America most is not more money, not more celebrities, not more conferences, not more programs or literature, not more Christian politicians, not more education, uh, not even more people. I believe what we need are people who actually embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord of all their life and surrender everything to Him and follow Him in all their ways. I believe what the church needs are disciples. I think it's not only the need of the American church, I think it's the greatest need of all the churches in this world. In fact, I believe it is the greatest need in the world for there to be disciples of Jesus Christ. It is our mission, is it not? Did Christ not give us those orders prior to his ascending into heaven? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And if it is our mission, it it could not be more important. And so I invite you this morning to consider with me the creation of a disciple. If I could put it this way, it seems like a disciple is made in this text in five steps. First of all, truth is seen. And before we consider the text, you'll note in verse 3 that this is a story about Simon, as I've already established. Simon has been seen in Luke's gospel prior to this. Remember up in Luke 4, who we, uh, Jesus, after he preached in Capernaum, went over to Simon's house, and there he healed his mother-in-law. We also know from other gospel accounts that Jesus began his ministry down in the south in Judea. And, and there, um, there was uh, uh, John the Baptist ministering in Judea. And John would declare of Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is at that declaration that one of John's disciples left John and spent a day with Jesus. And he was thoroughly amazed with his time with Jesus. His name was Andrew. Andrew would soon go find his brother Simon and say, I have found the Messiah. You see, Andrew and Peter were disciples of John the Baptist. In other words, they were very religiously devoted men. They, they were seeking after God. And when John was arrested, Jesus withdrew from Judea, leaving the authorities behind, and went up to the rural north in Galilee, which is where we find him now. Of course, Peter has left Judea as well because his master, John the Baptist, his, his mentor, is now arrested. And so he has returned home to Capernaum. My point is that Jesus and Simon are very familiar with each other at this point in which we read this story, beginning in verse 1. 
On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. You note that Jesus' reputation has grown, hasn't it? He, uh, prior to this, was preaching in synagogues there on the Sabbath, but now some have, many have come to hear the word of God from him, not in a synagogue, but he has moved to open air preaching. He's become so popular that, that, uh, more and more people want to hear him. He won't fit in a synagogue. In fact, more and more people want to hear him, and so he is not simply going to preach on the Sabbath, but he'll begin to preach every single day. And, and there are so many, the crowd is so large that they begin to press against Jesus. Now, I imagine it's hard to preach to people when they're actually bumping into you and they're standing in, in right in front of you. And so Jesus looks down on the shoreline and he realizes he's not the only one there. It's not just him and the crowds, but Peter and Andrew are there with their partners, James and John. They're washing their nets. Their work of fishing was done. And so Jesus says, the Bible says in verse 2, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. You see, at the dawn, they're going to beach their boats. And under the tedious sun, they're, they're going to do this, this work of washing and mending and drying and eventually folding their nets. Uh, this day, they begin to realize they're not alone on this beach. There is a massive crowd all around them, and they're trying to work around the crowd, I trust. It's the end of their day. They just want to finish up and go home. They want to put the clothes sign in the window and turn out the lights and, and retreat and, and sleep during the day as the fishermen would at this time. And yet Jesus has other plans, as you see in verse 3. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And so Jesus, before even asking Peter, just stands in Peter's boat and says, let's go out. Let's push us out for a little bit. And he wants to use the boat as a floating pulpit to give him a little bit more space. You notice that Luke is very careful. He says that they only went a little way out from the land. I don't know what a little way is, maybe 10 feet or so. He wants to preach to these people, so he doesn't want to be far from them. And and so there's Peter, and we know later that Andrew was also in the boat, and, and Jesus is preaching to the crowds. And he gives his sermon, and when he finishes his sermon, he turns to Simon, and then really the focus is now on Simon and Jesus for the rest of the story. As he says in verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And so Jesus says, let's go fishing. And we're on the boat, right, after all. Why, why don't you take me fishing, Peter? Now remember that, that Simon is tired. He has fished all night. This is hard work. He's not casting a fishing light out there. He is actually laying out a semicircle net that's a hundred feet wide, and then they would draw it back by hand, and then lay it out again and draw it back by hand. And you could add to his weariness the frustration of dealing with the multitudes pushing around him while he's trying to finish his work. And I trust he's moreover discouraged, as we'll note in a moment, that he caught absolutely nothing for an entire night fishing. I trust that puts fishermen in a bad mood when you spend all night fishing and you don't even get a nibble. And then you add to his tiredness and his frustration and his discouragement with the absolutely absurd request of Jesus to go out in the middle of the lake and fish in the middle of the day. You see, they couldn't fish during the day because the fish actually saw the trammel nets. That's why they had to fish at night. Fish will just swim away from the nets. And so it's just simply uh, uh, absurd to go out fishing during the day. And he, Peter knew this, of course. Uh, he was a fisherman. His, I trust his father was a fisherman and his father before him and his father before him. And Peter was an expert in, in fishing. And, and now here's Jesus who grew up as a carpenter and he's turned into a rabbi. And he's giving uh, Peter fishing advice. Right? So let's go out fishing. It would be kind of like me walking up to Clayton Kershaw or perhaps Tom Brady and telling them how to throw a ball. 
right? It would be absolutely insane. Let me show you how to do this. And Jesus here is, is, is inviting Peter to, to really go against everything he knows as a, a fisherman. And in fact, you know that uh, Simon is somewhat annoyed by this. In verse 5, and Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. Right, so how long did he fish? All night long. Was he tired? Yeah, he says, I've toiled. What did they make? Nothing. I just want to go home. And so he registers his frustration with Jesus. But you note this, and I find this uh, wonderfully encouraging. But at your word, I will let down the nets. You see, nevertheless, he obeys. Why does he obey? Well, because Jesus said so. But at your word. Because you say so, I'll do it. I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. But because you say so, I will obey. Sometimes when I ask my children to do something, they look at me and say, why? Right? I trust your children would never do that. But um, they, they want to understand why. I say, okay, kids, daddy would like you to do this. And they say, okay, well, why? Why? It's at times, not enough that their dad, who has authority over them, given by God, tells them to do it. They, they want a reason for it. And to be honest, I find it a little irritating. Uh, but, but, you know, in their defense, their dad is not perfect. And their dad has asked them, I trust, to do foolish things. And they have learned by now that daddy makes mistakes. And so they want to know, is there a good reason for this? Well, there is no good reason for Simon to fish, is there? There's no good reason for his uh, to lay down the net. There's no evidence that this is wise. He says, my lifetime professional training tells me what you're asking me to do is simply absurd. But I'll do it anyways. Because you say so. I wonder, do you ever do something that God asks you when it makes no sense? When you're tired, you're exhausted, doesn't seem wise to you, practical, prudent. But you do so simply because he says for you to do it. I think many times we, we want reasons why. I, I, I think we, we, want, we want a little evidence as to why it will be a good idea. We want a, a reason behind it. I would suggest to you, if you only obey Jesus when there's good reasons for it, you're not truly obeying him. You're taking his advice. Well, that seems like a good idea. I'll do it. And perhaps it's only when we, when we truly start to do things that make no sense to us that we actually begin to obey him, actually begin to do it because he says so. I think there's great encouragement here to those to, for us to obey when we're exhausted and confused. It seems to me that's when the blessings come. So perhaps Simon Peter uh, mutters under his breath as he casts out the nets that he's now dried and mended and folded and put away. If so, his muttering soon stops. So we read in verse 6, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, can you imagine what that's like as Peter begins to pull that net and feels the weight almost immediately? In fact, he, he uses all his strength to try to pull it in. And, and even Andrew helps him with the net and they can't get it in. And, and so he frantically calls for James and John and, and the second boat is quickly launched. And I trust it, it comes up alongside, perhaps the net in between. And they begin to bring these fish into the boats. And, and still with two boats, it's not enough. The catch is so large that the boats begin to sink as they frantically try to get to shore. In fact, you know how long these boats are? They're, they're, they're 27 feet long. And so I think that's about, let me just count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And so from the edge of that piano, it's about here. These are not small boats. And there are two of them. 
And these boats are so overladen with fish that they are lowering down in the water. They are, are sinking. There are several tons of fish hauled to shore that day amidst the roar of an astonished and delighted crowd. This is the catch of a lifetime. This is the one they would talk about for the rest of their days. And yet it was not their fishing ability that did it. But it was the power of Christ. And Jesus is revealing his power to them. And, and they've seen Jesus' power, haven't they? And the authority in his teaching. And he's healed the, the sick as they've seen. And he's cast out demons. And yet we know in the biblical accounts that other men do that. Other mighty men of God have done that. And yet now Jesus shows that he is controlling nature. He is controlling creation. That he is not simply a teacher or even a miracle worker. He is the creator. In fact, this is not lost on the crowd, as you know, in verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Just as the frogs and the locusts obeyed him in Egypt, so now the fish obey him in Galilee. God in all his power is present in Jesus. As Jesus reveals this incredible truth to Simon. And it's based upon the revelation of the truth that immediately follows is conviction. And when Jesus reveals who he is, conviction comes. As we see, secondly, conviction is felt. Note verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That's a fascinating response. I wonder kind of how I would have responded or how you would have responded. Perhaps you would have thought, I have a new business partner. Right? You pull out a contract for Jesus to sign. You know, why don't we just come by once a month for five minutes and, and we could go in business together? That's how many people treat Jesus, it seems like. It's how Capernaum wanted to treat him. Just have him blessed, turn him into a private genie, right? And, and, and do these things for me. And yet this is the farthest thing from Peter's mind. As his nets are tearing and his boats are sinking and he is thigh high in flopping fish, all he could see was Jesus. This was no accident. There's majesty here. There's holiness here. The divine is in my boat. And he falls down at the knees of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. And note what he says. It is not at this revelation a declaration such as, Lord, I love you. Lord, I'm so glad you're here. He says, please go away. Leave me. Get out of here. It's fascinating to me because throughout Jesus' ministry, people are constantly trying to get to him. As we'll see in the God willing next time we're in Luke, the leper pushing his way through the crowd to get to him. Have mercy on me, he would say. Or the, the paralyzed man later in Luke 5 tearing a hole through a roof to get him to Jesus. Or the bleeding woman forcing her way to Jesus. Everyone wants to get to Jesus except Peter. He wants to get away from Jesus. Why? We don't need to speculate. He says it. I am a sinful man. You see, faced with Christ's power, his soul is overflowed, over, over flooded with a sense of his own hollowness, his own evil, his own sinfulness, and he trembles in spiritual agony at the presence of God. In fact, I think if he were not on the boat, he would probably ran away. There is a reason, I believe, that Jesus says, let's go into the deep water. Because if they were still near the shore, would Peter not have jumped out of that boat and swam? And said, let's go to a place where you cannot get away with me as we do this work. And Peter's been with him many times. He's seen his power. 
But now he truly begins to understand that this is no mere man. You know, in the Bible, to be near to God is always at first painful. I think we, we miss this. If you go into Lifeway or, or, I don't know, Walgreens or something, and you look for a, a greeting card or something, you find a section near to God, right? Be close to God. Uh, I could just tell you what the, the card, it's going to be like a ivy-covered gate or a mountain lake or, you know, stained glass window with a beam of light coming through. And, and the, the assumption is to be near to God is to be warm. It's like sun on your skin or sitting next to the fire with some cocoa. It's, it's pleasant and, and encouraging and it's, it's, just, it's just nice. Well, those cards are designed by people who have no idea what they're talking about. I, I would just encourage you, do not take your theology from Hallmark. Um, they will miss it every time. I would encourage you, I think the Bible is a good place to get it. And the Bible says when people get near to God, the real God, they find it very, very unpleasant. They find it traumatic and painful. I love the count of Jacob. When he is in a very difficult place in his life, as he returns home, he knows he has wronged his brother, and he's worried how his brother's going to respond. His brother has accumulated great strength by this time, and he sends his family away, and Jacob is all alone at night in the middle of the wilderness, and he's praying. And while he's praying, all of a sudden, some man jumps him in the middle of the night. And, and he and, and this man begin to fight. And, and, and they do battle and wrestle. And not just for minutes, but for hours until the sun starts to rise. And the man wrestling with Jacob says, I have to leave now. But by this time, Jacob's realized this is no man. I don't know who this is, but I am not letting him leave. And Jacob says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And it's at this point in the story that we realize it wasn't really a fight. Because the man simply just reaches out and touches Jacob's hip and shatters the bone. I mean, his, his hip is, is dislocated. The bone is, is fractured. The Bible says Jacob will limp for the rest of his life. He is in absolute agony. And you know, you know why this man had to leave? Well, we, of course, know it's the Lord. We know if that the sun came up, the Bible teaches us, and Jacob saw his face, he would die. You know what Jacob named that place? Peniel, which means the face of God. And Jacob says, I saw the face of God and lived. Well, it's not exactly true. Right? Jacob has a very unique relationship with the truth. They're more acquaintances than close friends. Right? <laughs> right? It's more like I almost saw the face of God and all I got was a shattered hip. Right? <laughs> I think I made out pretty good, is what Jacob's saying. I was with God, and, and he, I, didn't, I didn't end up dead at all. He just busted up my hip. You see, he felt great. He felt this great um, pain with God. God, God was there. I mean, you, you, you won't see that on Hallmark cards, will you? You see that throughout the Bible. It's just not Jacob. Encountering God always brings trial, whether it's fallen Adam who runs and hides, or whether it's Israel and Sinai pleading with Moses, let not God speak with us lest we die, or it's Isaiah, the prophet of God, who would declare, woe to me, I am undone, or it's Job, the righteous man, who says, my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And here it's Simon Peter who begins to writhe in pain over his sin in the presence of his Maker. A heightened sense of God's presence always brings about a sense of our unworthiness. Not a sense of our righteousness or our God-likeness as Miss Burns would have us believe. The secret is we are not God. 
The secret is we are totally unlike God. And the Bible nowhere teaches that, that the more we know about God, the more casual we are with Him, the more informal we are with Him. Not once. I mean, how can you draw near to unimaginable holiness and still feel good about yourself? How can you draw near to all power without the illusion that you are in control of your life being tossed aside? How can you draw near to all love without being convicted of how selfish you truly are? God's presence brings an end to denial and shows us who we are. And at the same time, he loves us anyway at great cost. I think this is one of the reasons why, just by, by footnote, if I can, this is one of the reasons why it's imperative that you routinely gather and worship with God's people. It is a, it is a built-in reminder for you to, to remind yourself of who you are and who God is because you live your life and it's all about you all week long. Right? It's very easy to fall into that. What am I feeling? What am I thinking about? And it's good for us to gather with the people of God and realize, okay, life is not about me. I want to worship this holy and majestic God. I wonder when you gather, do you feel that? Do you sense that in your heart? I think this is a good test. If you think you're getting close to God and all you feel is toasty and warm, it may not be the real God. God brings trauma. He brought it on Peter. This is Peter's turning point. In fact, you know it's, it's in this verse, verse 8, that he is called Simon Peter. Peter sees himself at this time worse than he has ever seen himself before. I believe every person needs to come to this point. Every person needs to come to a point where they are overwhelmed with their sin and they repent. Not of this sin or that sin, but utterly they repent of themselves. And they turn themselves to God. They all, we all need to cry out to God, I am a sinful man. And so Peter is right. God is holy. He is sinful. But where he goes wrong is he draws the wrong conclusion. Right? He concludes, because I have sinned, and Jesus is holy and mighty. I can't have a relationship with him. It would be better for him to say, don't depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Well, Jesus will help him. Because Jesus does not say to him, you're right. Get out of here. I don't want to see you again. No, he doesn't leave, nor does he lecture. There's no rebuke, just comfort. You see, after conviction, God always brings comfort, as you see in verse 10. And so also were James uh, and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, he says to him three things. First of all, do not be afraid. Don't fear. What comfort it is that when Peter is full of uh, fear that Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid. I'm not leaving. I'm not going. I want, in fact, I want to comfort you. You understand, Jesus never leaves the repentant. Never leaves the repentant, no matter what you have done, no matter what sin you have committed. Jesus will never leave those who are convicted over their sin. He never sends the sinner away. Never. In fact, rather, when we know our sin before God, that's, that's what we need if we're going to actually come to Him and receive His comfort. In fact, this is what the gospel does. I think the gospel always does two things in our life. The gospel shows us we are so wicked that He had to die for us. And at the same time, it shows us we are so loved that He was willing to die for us. The gospel doesn't minimize our sin. There's total realism about our sin. And yet at the same time, we experience infinite love. Friends, the gospel tells us you are more wicked than you ever dared believe. And you are more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the gospel. 
And this is what's going on in Peter's life as Jesus now brings love upon him. And he goes on and says, from now on. You just stop there. Just rest on those words. He says, Peter, there's a future for you. I'm going to use you. In fact, you have to understand your sin before you come to me. And this very person who is making Peter feel worse than he has ever felt is now encouraging him more deeply than he has ever imagined possible. I don't know if you're ever overwhelmed by your failings. Don't run from God, Christian. Run to God. Jesus never leaves the repentant. He never casts aside the convicted. In fact, rather than leave Peter, Jesus says to him, I am going to use you. As you note, fourthly, a mission is given. The mission is given. He says at the end of verse 10, from now on, you will be catching men. You're going to fish for men. You're going to catch men for me. I trust Jesus is also teaching that he will catch men the same way he caught those fish. Through the power of Christ. I think it's no coincidence that Peter caught nothing the night before. I think Jesus is teaching him that you will only do my work through my power. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You will catch for my kingdom by the power of the king. But he uses Peter. I mean, Peter must be willing to do this work must be willing to embrace this mission. And if he didn't cast the net, there would be no catch. There would be no fish. Peter must do the work in which God requires of him in order for the, God to bring about the results. In fact, I am very encouraged that Peter, as we've noticed, is not brimming with, uh, with faith here. He's been up all night. He's fished out. He's exhausted. I mean, how many excuses do we have for not building the kingdom, for not witnessing, for not discipling, for not doing the work in which God has called us? And where we, we sometimes do it half-heartedly. I think we should be encouraged that Jesus doesn't pitch him overboard when he says, you know, I've been fishing all night and I haven't caught anything. No, he accepts even that half-hearted obedience and does the miracle anyways. Right? The time is never perfect. Our hearts are never right. And yet Christ honors our efforts to obey him. And Peter brings in this multitude of fish. In fact, Luke's going to use that word multitude many times in the book of Acts. Never to speak about fish. But always to speak about people coming in to the kingdom. In fact, it says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes both of men and women. And so he is going to use Peter. He gives them this mission. I do want to remind us who Peter is. He's a fisherman. He's not elite. He's not educated. He's a Galilean. These are the, the rednecks of the day. These are the commoners. These are the, the country folk. You know, these are the poor. You think, well, he must be humble. Nope. Not humble either. Pretty arrogant. All of them, they like to bicker a lot. They're pretty bigoted. They think it's all about Israel. Right? They often seem to be more of a burden to Jesus than a blessing. In other words, they don't bring much to the table, Right? And yet he chose them, the weak and the lowly and the foolish. His plans have not changed. That's still who he uses. The weak and the lowly, people that don't have a lot to bring to the table, people that will despair of their own work in order that they might trust in him. I like what a second century uh, a critic of Christianity said about a hundred years after Christianity began. He looked at Christianity and he concluded with these words. If any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, let him become a Christian. We see them as the worst, the most vulgar, the most uneducated people. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp. 
Well, welcome to the Frog Symposium this morning. God's power is used despite our inability. In fact, He rejoices in using the weak when we become totally dependent upon Him. We despair of our own righteousness and our own power and our own ability. He says, I'm going to make you a fisher of man. And that's exactly what he does. He does it. Peter becomes incredibly fruitful for the kingdom of God. Oh, that God would do that work in Hamilton Baptist Church. That he would be kind to make us men and women who are eager to be used by him. And I have a fear, and some of, I've expressed this to some of you, that we are becoming increasingly too content with meager fruitfulness. And that we are losing a desperation for God to do a work here. And so God, may God cause us to become impatient. May God cause us to cry out to Him. Will you not do a work in Hamilton Baptist Church? Something that we can point to. that it, Not our own abilities, but you have done it. And that, that we might be a trophy for you and not for us. A trophy for your grace and, and might. I'm afraid that, that things are going well here and, and our numbers are, are growing a little bit and, and it's uh, becoming you know, an increasingly peaceful and happy place. And I praise the Lord for all of that. But that is not our mission. To have a peaceful, happy church. It is to bring people into the kingdom and raise them up as disciples of Christ. It is to be fishers of men. May God do that work. Lord Jesus, we need you. It is the work, the mission that is given to Peter. It is the work that is given to us. And after the mission is given, we see lastly, a relationship begins. And it is a, a costly relationship. And note verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. It doesn't say they obeyed him. It doesn't say they signed up for a class to learn about him. It says they went with him. They lived with him. They became part of his family. You see, you and I are not just simply called to obey him, though we are. We're called to follow him. We're called to listen to him. We're called to speak with him and hear from his word that he has left behind and speak to him in the great privilege of prayer and, and to have that relationship with him, to live our lives with Jesus. A relationship begins. And yet it is a costly relationship. For you know, verse 11 does say, they left everything and followed him. Now note for a minute what they left. I don't think this is simply just a reference to their nets and boats, though they did. They left that catch. Right? Peter has never seen a catch of fish like that. You know, flopping on the shore now is his lifelong pursuit of professional and economic success. This is everything Peter has worked for. It's what he's gone to school for. It's what he's invested his life for. There is more wealth on that beach now than Peter has ever seen or perhaps even dreamed about. And you could almost hear Jesus say to Peter, are you coming? Are you coming? I wonder if he glanced back at that fish and, and just saw that. And then looked over and Jesus beckons him to follow. I don't know. But we do know that he walked away from the fish, from 
his boats, from his career, from the life he knew. And not just Peter, you see there in verse 11, and they left everything. This would be Andrew and James and John. Would you have left? Would you have walked away from it? If God called you, come follow me. But but I'm about to get a promotion. Come follow me, but, but I'm about to get a raise. You see, being in a relationship with Jesus is often costly. He makes demands upon your life. He gives commands. Now, most likely, he doesn't call people, most people, to leave their vocation, to, to head to the mission field, or to become a vocational pastor. Though he might, by the way. And we just sent friends, have we not, from this area to Kurdistan. This young man who had a prosperous career as a defense contractor, and he and his young family walked away to, to move to Iraq and to share the gospel. God does that. But please understand that when Jesus makes you a disciple, he, he demands every part of you. A relationship begins with him, and this becomes the most important thing in your life. In fact, you begin to cling so tightly to Jesus that the other things in your life, you kind of just let go of them. You don't grab onto them, and, and you're increasingly happy to let go, if that means you can have more of Jesus. You're, you're happy to, to walk away from your, your lifelong ambitions and dreams if you get more of him. Jesus says, I have a mission for this world. I, I, I want to undo the wrongs of this world. I, I, I want to care for the hurting. I want to save the nations. I want to bring the kingdom of God. I want to create disciples. And he says to all of us, are you coming? Are you coming? Will you follow me? I want to show you there is fishing beyond fishing. And there is wealth beyond wealth. You must follow me though. You must be my disciple. And they did. They, they left everything and they followed him. I mean, it's, it's obvious as we will read through the Gospel of Luke that these, these men lacked a lot of things. But one thing they did not lack is devotion to Jesus. Their hearts were captured by Christ. Their lives were gripped by His mission. And they gave up everything to be His disciples. This, I think, despite what we have seen and what we have been taught, is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is to surrender everything to Jesus and to follow Him. You will find no one in the Bible that, that is, is satisfied to receive the forgiveness of Jesus, and yet there is no life change in them. It doesn't take place. It's foreign in Scripture. And may we, therefore, not live for this world and our comfort and our success and the trinkets and the trifles of this world that so easily capture our heart, but we would live for the King, that He would be our all and our everything. And we would gladly obey him because of it. Peter did, and it changed his life. In fact, we know this because in John chapter 21, there's another encounter between Jesus and Peter. This is after Jesus was raised from the dead. And Peter is is overwhelmed with everything that's going on. The crucifixion, his, his own abandonment of Jesus. And so he returns to Galilee, doesn't he? And perhaps he wants to clear his head a little bit. And he goes back to what he's always known, fishing. And he fishes all night. And he doesn't catch anything. And there's a man, a stranger, who's walking on the shoreline in the pre-dawn darkness. And he calls out. I love what he says. He says, haven't you caught any fish? He doesn't say, did you catch any fish? He implies that they haven't. Haven't you caught anything? And Peter mutters back, no. And the stranger then tells him, cast your nets over onto the right side. And for some reason, Peter does. He casts his net and begins to draw them in and begins to feel that familiar weight. And the, the, the nets begin to tear as he tries to pull those fish in. 
And he looks at the stranger on the shoreline and he recognizes immediately who it is. It's the same miracle, isn't it? You fished all night. They have the same problem. They fished all night and, and no fish. The same instruction, toss your nets. The same miracle, a, a miraculous catch and fish. And yet there is one difference, isn't there? You know the difference? In the first miracle, Peter says, depart from me. Get away from me. Leave me. In the second miracle, Peter, fully dressed, takes a head dive out of the boat and swims to Jesus as fast as he can, emerging from that lake with his beard dripping and a breathless grin upon his face as he wants to get as close to Christ as he possibly can. Now the question is, what has changed? Has he forgotten his sin? Does he not know of his sin anymore? No, friends, I would suggest to you, after he has denied Jesus three times and proved himself to be a liar and a coward, he is more aware of his sin than he ever has been. And so why does he run to Jesus this time instead of flee from him? Well, because he understands the gospel. And he understands that his acceptance by a holy God has nothing to do with his record of righteousness. It has everything to do with that this man has not only lived this life, but has died a death and there taken all the sin that Simon Peter would ever commit and three days later being raised from the dead and now has invited Simon into a relationship with the Holy God, not based upon his own goodness and righteousness and deeds, but based upon the work of Christ through his crucifixion and his resurrection and the grace freely extended to all who would believe in Jesus. Peter gets it. Do you get it? Are you a Luke 5 Peter? Or a Luke 21 Peter? It's easy to know. When you sin, and you do, and I do, when we blow it and we commit that sin that we have promised God a thousand times we never commit again, and yet we do it, how do you respond? I just need to get away from God for a little bit. I don't want to think about Him. I don't want to pray. I don't want to read the Word. I, I just need to get some distance between God. Or do you run to Him? Oh, Jesus, I've blown it again. Help me. Help me. Are you Luke 5, Peter? Or Luke 21, Peter? Do you understand the Gospel? He's died for you. He's paid all your sin. Do you trust Him for that? Perhaps there are some here that do not know Christ as your Savior. I tell you, based upon the authority of God's Word, that it is not a matter of your righteousness, your goodness, or your wickedness. It is a matter that Christ has died for you. You must trust Him. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's all of faith. May God implant His gospel in our heart that we understand we may run to Him. May we surrender everything to Him. May we follow Him no matter what the cost may be that we might join Him on this mission to bring His kingdom upon this earth. Our Father, we thank You so much for the work of Christ in our lives. We thank You that He is so faithful to us. We thank You that His grace and blood has covered all of our sin as we have sung this morning. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing do we bring to You. Nothing do we accrue to our own credit but the blood of Christ. And we thank You for that great work. May You, because of it, capture our hearts. May our delight be found not simply in the, the blessings of this world, though we praise You for them, and they are good but may our delight be found in the one who gives them to us. 
And may we freely be willing to give up whatever you would call us to do. Our reputation, our, our comfort, that we might be willing to proclaim Christ. That we might be willing to make disciples. Help this church, Father. Help Hamilton Baptist Church, this faith community, not be simply a place where we gather once a week and get encouraged, but may it be a community that truly lives for you. Please do a work amongst us. Sanctify us. Send us on mission that we may be a trophy for your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.